Studs? Oh, when Norman Mailer was in town last week, uh, the subject was his book of A Fire on the Moon, uh, Little Brown, Atlantic, the publishers. So the question arose, uh, this has come up very often, the question of form. Is it a new form? Is it an old form? Is it a, is it a novel? This came up, too, with Armies in the Night, uh, his work that won the uh, Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award uh, covering the demonstration, the peace demonstration in Washington. And in this case, it's the, again, the combination of his being there, at the same time trying to create something new. Perhaps it's something old, something new, something borrowed. And, uh, definitely not blue or blue at times. But nonetheless, I asked him that question, and so the conversation began. Oh, I think it, uh, what I was trying to do is, is, is to show that uh, journalism uh, really has always been too limited in its view of what could be done, that, that uh, you know, you can, you can bring all the equipment of the novel to journalism and end up with uh, something that has a very odd effect that reads like a novel, although it's factual. We're talking about an event, uh, men reaching the moon, two men and a third man near, the big event. And yet, it's how it affected a certain creative guy. And through this book of A Fire on the Moon, we get an idea of our whole society and its values and everything else, don't we? Last time I was talking about this with Lynn Kane, and uh, I said, she put the idea in my head, and I realized that what I had been up to in, in writing this book was I was trying to connect the event to history. You know, that whole that trip to the moon was almost like uh, a it's almost, it's almost like a dream in terms of the everyday life of people. In another couple of years, there'll be people arguing in bars about whether anyone ever went to the moon. Because it's absolutely an event by itself. There's no connection to anything else that we understand. It doesn't have to do with depressions. It doesn't have to do with ball games. It doesn't have to do with foreign policy. It doesn't have to do with the Cold War. It, it doesn't have to do with uh, uh, black rights. It, it has, it's absolutely unconnected to anything that people know about. In terms, you know, when people think of history, they think of things that they read about in their papers that they understand one way or another. But this event was isolated. You know, it exists, it's as if you're riding across open, rather deserted country, and yeah. suddenly there's a very complicated building in the middle of nowhere yeah. that has, has no relation to anything else. As you say this, I couldn't help but think of uh, there are certain sequences in this book. I disagree with you, by the way. I think that it is great for out loud reading, though the fact is you yourself don't read out loud. I read out loud very poorly when I'm reading my own stuff. I can read other people's stuff yeah. sometimes with, uh, you know, sometimes I read it well, sometimes I read it badly. But my own stuff, is oh, it's always terrible. I, I made a record once, and I... I, I spent years trying to buy that record up. Now, the reason I said that is a, uh, something related to what you said a moment ago about this surreal event, unrelated. I was thinking of a scene from Fellini's Eight and a Half, that miracle scene. Everybody gathered, the pilgrimage, you all came. You describe it. You describe the campers, well, the hard-working people. It was, more, it was, was beyond being a middle-class event. You describe the dreams of all the mechanics, of all the hard-working guys. He could have been one of those guys. That is, in his, if, yeah, if you uh, weren't boozing so much, yeah. if his life were different. Somewhere you have that sequence. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, the uh, camper uh, uh, sequence. But it's sort of about the first 100 pages of the book. And, uh, well, of course, that's, uh, you know, that was the part of the event that uh, I found most exciting was, was uh, the, the night before liftoff and the liftoff itself. You, you know, that's an incredible event when you see a liftoff. It, it, uh, you it was hardly just middle-class America here tonight. Rather, every echo of hard trade union beer binge Paunch, cut and muscle and lean, whippy redneck, hunky tonk clans out to bird watch in the morning, with red eye in the shot glass, 
and goes on. There were tourists and not an inelegant campers, which spoke of peanut butter and jelly, watercress and cucumber, suburban campers. But there was also the raw gasoline of expectation in the air and families of poor Okies. One felt the whole South stirring on this night. Quiet, pious Baptists out somewhere on their porches, kin to some of the redneck and Oki, Oki to Okichi. Oh, oh, yeah, that was Okie for Okeechobee. For Okeechobee. Because, you know, I grew up with the Okies in yeah. Oklahoma. And the, but out in Florida, they call, uh, certain poor rednecks are called Okies because they come from Okeechobee Swamp. And then you go on and talk about the dreams. At the end, this one guy, somewhere there's a guy, a mill worker with red hair and gray-green eyes, red sunburn, red peeling skin on his uh, knotty forearms. He could be the astronaut in another life. And here's the part. He'd work with machines all his life. He tooled cars to the point where he thought they could respond to his care. That's one thing about America, and that's technology. You know, you, read, you can read my stuff anytime. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, right. you read it better than I do, really. Coming back to this, this dream, this way it's, it's almost a fantasy dream of all these guys who love technology. Oh, I see, what you, yeah. I, I see your, your big point, that, that, that you're saying it is connected to history because it was in everyone's dreams and people are interested in, in mechanics. Or yeah, particularly this guy. You well, know, everywhere in every small town, you got the kid who can work on a car. I don't argue with you on that, but what I am getting at is, is that when I say something is connected to history, I suppose what I mean by that is, 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 uh, is connected to the mass media, connected to the, uh, the public consciousness of the time. In other words, the uh, what the opinion makers and trend makers are doing with it. Now, one of the things that's interesting is almost always when there's a large event, the opinion makers and the trend makers dominate it. And they always have a handy reference to it afterward. For instance, to this day, you can have people say, well, that policy originated at Yalta. And that, that Yalta is connected to history. But it's as if the mass media, although they give enormous attention to the moon uh, trip, really uh, just didn't know what to do with it. And they never could get near it. And they just didn't know how to fit it into their scheme of things. And of course, it isn't that I think I have too much in common with the mass media, but for me, the, the interest in writing this book was how do I fit this moon trip into my scheme of things? Because it was as if that the, the trip to the moon had put a crowbar under one corner of my head and tilted it up, you know, as if a lot of wires in my head were literally being torn loose from their terminals. And I was just having to, almost if you will, to use this corny, crude way of putting it, that I had to redo the wiring. Yeah. And, and so uh, the, the, this book is an attempt to um, uh, uh, get it together, in other words, to comprehend this event in relation to myself, because it seems to me to comprehend it in relation to itself yeah. is meaningless. Well, uh, you, you are a poetic, I mean, you're a poetic person, you're a creative spirit, and here is an event that may have little to do with it. It has a lot to do with technique, with technology, great deal of thought involved, of course, and tremendous masses of people, the teams in Houston and mm. Cape Kennedy, we know of the three. But the opposite is this individual creative guy, because it opens with the death of Hemingway, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. And the, on the eve, the triumph of technology. Yeah. The death of yeah. a poet, and the eve, the triumph of technology. So this, in a sense, was also rolling about like some loose cannonball in your mind. Yeah, well, you know, I was obsessed also with another thing, and it is, is, is for me, is, is the moonshot capped, I think, one of the most extraordinary decades in human history. I think the 60s, uh, at least, uh, put it this way, that one of the most extraordinary decades in one nation's history, because the 60s were not necessarily so extraordinary a period for the world. But for America, I don't think America's ever had a decade like the 60s. I think you really would have to go back to the Civil War to have a decade that was as incredible in American life. 
And you know, at a certain, toward the end of the book, I suddenly realized what a start. I said, this is a decade that began with the suicide of Ernest Hemingway and Marilyn Monroe back in 61. Both, incidentally, and not only are celebrated figures, see. Yeah. One a great writer, one an actress, yeah. both celebrated. But also beloved and beautiful people, mm. you, know, you know, really beautiful to the American imagination. And, 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 and ends with the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And then is topped by the moonshot. And you see, and, and so it, to me, there was this sort of extraordinary structure to the decade. Can I just ask you one thing? The moonshot does have a political implication. A moment ago, you said unrelated. The fact is, in the matter of, of uh, priorities, in the matter of showing how strong we are, even to the vulgar planting of the flag, you know? Yeah. Oh, it had all of these yeah. things, but what I'm getting at is usually it had all these things. At the time, it seemed very powerful. I mean, what I mean is at the moment when that was being done, it seemed like the most extraordinary event yeah. ever. But what, what got me about it as I was writing about it in all those months afterward is the way it, it receded almost instantly from everyone's consciousness. So six months later, I don't think people ever thought about that moon landing. You point this out somewhere here. That was, isn't it remarkable? A great event. Oh, here, landing on moon. I have a note here. Why no wild celebrations? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that was a 385. 385, yeah. This is, this is it. Well, how come there was no such great joy? At that moment, yes, of course. But how come there was not this residue? Of well, uh, let me uh, break my own rule and see if I can read a little of this. Because uh, I think it applies to what we were talking about. In this hour, they landed on the moon. America was applauding Armstrong and Aldrin, and the world would cheer America for a day. But something was lacking, some joy, some outrageous sense of adventure. Strong men did not weep in the street, nor ladies copulate with strangers. Any armistice to any petty war had occasioned wilder celebrations. It was almost as if a sense of woe sat in the center of the heart, for the shot to the moon was a mirror to our condition. Most terrifying mirror. One looked into it and saw intimations of a final disease. But probably it will take the rest of the trip to absorb the remark. You know, and then it goes on about this, 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 on this particular point, that it was not that accelerating an event. It was the event itself, but the reaction of the people, so much had happened. You, you, was, you, were, you were speaking of the decade itself. Well, I, you know, one image uh, I kept using yeah, through the book yeah was that, it, that the world felt a little bit the way a young man feels when he has his first baby, and he's absolutely numb, and he doesn't know what the hell it's all about, and he maybe hasn't thought anything to his wife's pregnancy, and he keeps knowing that he should feel this is extraordinary, because his whole life is going to be different, everything's going to be different, he doesn't feel a thing, and people come up to him and they say, congratulations, and he hands him a cigar, and he goes through all this uh, sort of, this play work of pretending to be something that he's not, but at the center of himself, he's just thinking, what am I into? I'm a kid, I got a kid now, I haven't grown up myself, just I don't know what I want to do, be. Just to uh, extend that even further, his wife was having a baby, but his whole life is falling apart otherwise. So yeah. If we, if we want to draw the oh, analogy I see. Society, to, Yes, oh, you mean like he's, he, he owes $2,000 to a bookie and... Oh, uh, God knows, uh, well, uh, six or seven girls now, all of a sudden they've met, his wife's yeah. having it, not only his infidelity and his guilt and everything else. Even though they're all pregnant. Yeah, and, <laughs> and but here's our society now. You see, we hit the moonshot, but in the meantime, Everything is falling apart. Back at the ranch. Yeah, so. well, I think, yeah, I think uh, your, your point could not yeah. be better taken. So it's but, there's something else that, to me, um, uh, overwhelms me about this book, is because you followed it personally, we follow you. We see you, whether it's Norman Mailer or Aquarius. We see you, and we also see ourselves. Here you are with a bunch of newspaper guys, 
at the soft drink machine and it's not working. That is, we get to the moon with the soft drink yeah. machine. There's a big hang up there. Yeah, and not only that, but, but the thing that was idiotic about it is not only is the soft drink machine not working, and you have a 200 people waiting in line on a hot Florida morning sun, but if they'd hired three guys who, uh, you know, just three guys from the local hash house to serve out drinks, that whole line would have moved like that. And it was part of the idiocy of modern life was right there. That, you know, that not only can we build machines to go to the moon and not serve cold drinks properly, but on top of that, it's wrong. Uh, you, you know, just because we're going to the moon with mighty machines doesn't mean that we have to insert machines into every last pore of uh, social life. So we come back to the question of hiring three guards, that is, three humans, yeah. three men, in, instead of, say, a machine that may or may not work. See, we're mm -hmm. so taken with technology. We're not even talking about science now, we're talking about technology. Right, right, yeah. That it's, it's worse for us. It is not better for us, but worse for us in the small amenities of life. Yeah, well, that, that of course, is, is, is one of my strongest beliefs, you know, that technology is absolutely destroying the very uh, uh, tissue and uh, texture of human life. At the same but time, you're not, you're not a Luddite. I mean, you're not for the destruction of machines. I don't even know anymore. Uh, what I mean is, 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 is uh, well, first of all, I think I'm not for it as a political policy, because I think you get into absurdities there. Yeah. I mean, what are we going to do, start forming uh, revolutionary cadres to go out and smash factories? Yeah. Obviously, you'd end up with a police state in 22 minutes. So it isn't a matter of that, but I think what may happen is, is that uh, when I'm my most pessimistic, I believe that there are plagues coming toward us. In other words, that in 20, 40, 60 years, we may all be falling, dying in huge numbers through plague. And that, uh, uh, you, that if that happens, I think there'll come a point when people may react against the machine, or when the machine society may cease to function, and, and the machines may just rust, you see. Or isn't it because we just use machines, you know, was, it was Norbert Wiener, I think, the guy who coined the word cybernetics. Says, mm -hmm. render unto man that which is man's, and unto the machine that which is the machine's. We're entering everything under the machine. Maybe this is what, the machine per se isn't bad. The machine per se. Or well, well, maybe even the machine per se is bad. We don't know. I mean, we just don't know. One of the things that, that I try to get into in this book is that we have, man has solved, or has made, has made a major decision to solve all his problems through technology. But suppose there was some other possibility open to us that we lost 2,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago or whenever. That, for instance, we talk about radio. It may have been that man was perfectly capable of developing into an animal who could hear people talking 10,000 miles away through his own telepathic equipment, and that in the course of developing machines, we shattered that possibility. You see, the very vibrations of machines would obviously be inimical to telepathic powers, generally speaking. and and. Uh, uh, we know that by the nervousness of which we even begin to talk about things like this, anyone who begins to talk in such fashion is on the edge of declaring himself a nut. You know, so we just don't like to get into those conversations. But it is perfectly possible that all of the things we do, uh, are to, uh, that the, you know, the fact that they've taken the form of technology has been, has been the, the pit, it's been the hole. That man should have been able to transport himself from one place to another by some other means than airplanes. Mm. And, uh, the fact that, as in, you know, following with what you're talking about, talking to Norman Mailer and the theme is of a fire on the moon, his, his, I'm about to say, vision, I think that's right, I was going to say his version, suddenly a Freudian slip occurred, that's right, his vision of this event, and it's a poetic vision, and in a sense, I think it's the in, inchoate in many of us, the same thoughts that he's expressing as, as a writer, seeing it, that you, when you were in Houston, you went back and forth from uh, 
You went to Houston where a team was and then to Cape Kennedy in Florida. But you found yourself this time not in the motel in some little basement, but you had trouble with the blinds. Mm -hmm. But you were in control of the blinds. The point is, at least it was you, the man, fixing the blinds. Yeah, yeah. Whereas when it comes to this technological event, there's, it seems that's nobody really in control of it. Yeah, uh, you mean that that finally there's no head at NASA, that it's a headless well, I don't uh, know. bureaucracy? Fact, uh, a moment ago, how about the machines? You know, mm -hmm. maybe a, a runaway technology. This guy, Alul, this Frenchman, thinks that the machines have a life of their own. You speak of the Yeah, well, I, do, I do too, in a way, yeah. Uh, oh, I think that part of the, part of the peculiar, of, 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 uh, you know, the peculiar feeling of, of, of that flight to the moon is, 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 is that on the one hand, we're all sort of stunned by the very power that we have. You know, again, I go back to this, this father who can't comprehend it. He knows it's a magnificent event. He knows some sort of funny miracle has occurred. A child has, yeah. you know, has come out of his loins. He doesn't comprehend it, but he knows it's fantastic. At the same time, he's numb, and he's, and he's feeling numb and stricken, and he feels funny. Well, I think you see that the thing about this moon event is that nobody was able to get near it. Even the journalists couldn't get near it. And as a result, there was no feeling for, for uh, nobody had any feeling of what was it like. It was a mysterious trip. You know, you can't tell anything from watching something on television about what it's really like, I mean, what it feels to be like inside the cabin. You know, there's something else here, just you're talking, maybe the one thing was missing, was there an air of wonder missing? Well, I think at NASA they were trying to suppress this air of wonder as much as possible because, you know, they are technicians there and they don't like to work with questions that can't be structured to go into the computer. Now, the word wonder doesn't go into a computer. Uh, computers can answer any question which will respond to yes or no formulation. You see, but the moment you get a question that, uh, for example, in a computer can receive a question like, is there a God? It can be programmed in such a way to weight evidence so it'll come up with an answer that says yes or no. But it, a, a computer cannot receive a question which says, what is God like? It cannot deal with that. So in, in technology, the, the emphasis is always on uh, uh, on, on structuring things so they can be broken down into little subunits. In other words, they don't care if you've got to break something down into two billion subunits, provided each little subunit has a yes or no switch in it. Of course, this is the difference, isn't it? As you point out, one could be uh, the saint that is uh, science or God, you know, and the other is the sinner or the nothing technology that science has wonder to it. Science has leaps to it, the leap of the imagination, whereas technology is one step following another step. Hour, yeah. right. And so the guys involved, and of course this is one of the, to me, incredible aspects of your book is the description of the men in both places. They become interchangeable, don't they? They have to be interchangeable to a great degree. They just have to be by the nature of the trip. Uh, uh, for instance, if what if one man got a, a acute attack of acute indigestion on the trip, just for sake of argument, and just so bad that he couldn't, just, he wasn't mortally ill, but he just couldn't function on the trip. Well, the other men would have to be able to take over his job to a great extent. So they're, they're literally interchangeable that way. But on top of that, there's a matter of personality, which is they do not, uh, most of us pride ourselves on our individuality. We just think, oh my God, we're all living in a time of mass man. Uh, well, we all tend to get more and more alike. Um, uh, my God, if only we could find something in ourselves that's a little individual. And we tend to be very fond of anything in ourselves that's individual. But with these guys, these astronauts, they are men who, who, I suppose you can start by saying that they have so much individuality at the very beginning. In other words, that they were the best pilots in their flying class, which is, certainly establishes a man as an individual and a leader, that they are proud, really, of their ability to be interchangeable, you see. They're, they're proud of the fact that they're not individual. 
that they consider their individuality a luxury. Uh, uh, Armstrong, in fact, has a remark at one point that, uh, uh, that he, he was talking about certain books he hadn't been able to read, and he said they were a luxury I did not have time to afford. You, you know, there's a certain displacement of, of, of the uh, 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 individual in, in this. You even the choice of Armstrong, you, you point a man named Deke Slayton, I guess yeah. he was the man. Why he chose this guy, looking for almost a Lindy figure. In a way, wasn't he? In a way, someone cool. Yeah, well, of course, I could have an argument. You know, you know, anyone at NASA would say that right there. I didn't know what I was talking about. That these men were appointed from two years out. That when Slayton appointed these men, they you know, they call it putting them in a slot. In other words, you put three men on one flight and three men on the next flight and three men on the next flight. This is all done a couple of years ahead, and you just don't know at that time which is going to be the man on the moon flight. And uh, so people at, at NASA would tend to say, well, Mailer doesn't know what he's talking about there. It was just an accident that it happened to be Armstrong and Aldrin. It could as easily have been Conrad and Bean, or it could have been uh, uh, the flight before that with uh, Stafford and uh, Cernan. But the, my feeling was that, actually, was that I can't prove it. My feeling was that Slayton had picked Armstrong, that he, th that he thought Armstrong was possibly the best man to represent us first on the moon. When I asked about the men being interchangeable like machines, I wasn't thinking the three astronauts. That's interesting. I was thinking of the men on the ground, you know, the technology was involved here. Mm -hmm. that, and you have a description describing differences, too, between the Houston group yeah. and the Florida group. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they, these interesting differences, too. Yeah, because the, uh, the Florida group is a sort of uh, more of a freebooter group. You, you know, I mean, you'll find the heavy drinkers in Florida, and you'll find the swingers in Florida, and you'll find... And also, since there's a lot of heavy factory work out in Florida, putting these these rockets together, you you, you know you feel sometimes like you're near a steel mill. You know, a lot of big burly guys with hard hats on their heads are, are work going to work and all that. And there are a lot of strip joints out, you know, within 15, 20 miles of Cape Canaveral. And and the whole feeling is it has still has a, a tiny air of honky tonk and uh, uh, it to it. Whereas Houston is is very much like a church. It's very austere, very spare. Uh, the, the manned spacecraft center set out on a desert, practically. So it became, became a new Not industry. a desert, but a you know, flat yeah. grassland. It became a new industry, too, in a way. It became an in, industry. In Houston? Well, oh, well, oh yeah. Well, well yeah. also in Florida. Florida's beefed up. You know, I mean, northern Florida's really got a sort of an economic lease on life with, with the space Couldn't the name of the building, the VAB. What's that? Uh, what is it again? The initials? The, uh, the Vehicle Assembly yeah. Building. And it sounds like the name of, say, a detergent. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. VAB. Yeah. VAB, I know. Isn't is it, it awful? Yeah. It, it, it's the biggest, it's the largest building. At the time it was built, it was the largest building in the world. In other words, the volume inside was greater than any building. It was something like, well, I think it was almost twice as large as the Merchandise Mart in Chicago. So what's happening here, several things you describe it, as a, there's an event, a technological event. It's of interest to science, but a technological event becomes a huge commercial event and also a political event, obviously. The, oh, you describe the, by the way, the, uh, the figures who were there in the stands and the, the scene that you avoided. Oh, the hotshots were there. But then again, the question of celebrity comes into this, doesn't it? The politician, uh, the actors, uh, the industrialists, all by virtue of mass media become celebrities too. They were all there. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it, it is it is an event. I mean, there's nothing wrong really with their being there, except that they were a lot of them are just obviously taking credit for something they had nothing to do with, except once the Great Wall to vote an appropriation bill. Well, what's but what's what's on your mind is something else here, isn't it? It's uh, you speak of a non uh, some of the guys behind glass when they were I guess for a time they were quarantined, or they were behind glass. When we interviewed them at one yeah. point. The, uh, uh, the magazine writers one point had an interview. Yeah, but they were the men in the glass booth, yeah. yes. But then you speak that that's surreal too, in a way, isn't it? 
The whole event was surreal. Yeah. I, you know, if you, uh, I think I used some image at that point that to interview a man behind glass makes you realize that he's already in history because you can't touch him. You, you know, uh, he's not a man like other men. Mm, uh, describing, of course, ironies are involved here naturally. Uh, the, the description, you have a great description of Erna Van Brown's arrival by helicopter, which you described the new status symbol of the Praetorian Guard today. Mm and then his speech to the guys and that good food. And it's all mixed up, too. That's how everything's mixed up. Well, I was trying to get the, uh, 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 you know, to me, the marvelous thing about America is we do these extraordinary things all the time. And they always, since we're all, uh, since we're finally, we're a humble people, you, you know, and we're all transplanted. We've all come here from some other place except for the American Indian. Uh, we have a funny mixture of the grandiose and the very commonplace all the time. And so you're next to, you, you, you know, we don't, have much comprehension of pomp, so our pomp is always either uh, is sort of incredibly vulgar or, or very overblown, and then next to it be very homespun. And, and there's this funny mixture that the men who run America are very often are very, very simple people. And, and uh, so all that creates uh, sort of great comedy and contradiction when you're uh, writing about. Uh, At the same time, there is this dream or this uh, nightmare, whatever it is. So on the cover, you have this painting of my great, you were visiting. I was visiting a, a, whole, a whole a family that I know, a very wealthy family in Houston, and it was just after, uh, well, it was after they'd landed on the moon, and uh, that night I went to visit them, and, and as I walked into their living room, I saw this painting by Magritte of a rock, which looks like a moon rock, in a living room, a painting that done maybe 20 years ago. And I was overcome with it. It was, a, it was almost as if the artist had created this painting as some sort of vision of the future you know, of a moon rock in our room. Now, when he painted it, I'm sure he didn't even think of it as a moon rock. It was just a rock. But uh, it was just, uh, after seeing all those photographs of the moon those that week, it was an extraordinary picture. So my publishers agreed to, to, to put it on the jacket. It, it's though, as though it's something out of context, too. Again, surreal, see? A rock in the living room, mm -hmm. you know? A rock as against a uh, blue, a sort of an azure sky. Mm. And so. You, you, in your mind came this connection. You know, they came back with a rock. And by the way, the rock is under glass. It's Smithsonian, isn't it? Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah. That's also kind of funny, isn't it? That's also under glass, yes. No, yeah, yeah, the whole deal is under glass. Everything under glass. Mm -hmm. So the three astronauts were behind glass or under glass as, as you could talk to them but not touch them. Mm -hmm. They're untouchable. Now the rock that they came back with, that long, long trip, you know, I mean, Mrs. Trip, that necessary is the question. If it's for a rock under glass, you know, or to prove our own, our own uh, muscle. Well, I think the the trip had to be done in some funny way. Uh, I never really questioned the trip. It's almost as if uh, men, at the moment, men recognize that they can do something. They've got to do it. Though they just don't rest. We've all had that experience in smaller ways in our private lives. See, but curious and restless as you are, naturally you can't help but. In, in your work on, on this venture, it touched on other aspects. Here were three white guys, three wasps, waspatu, you heard. And you met this black professor at the home of your host. And his thoughts, obviously, his thoughts reflect the thoughts of many, many people, of course. Yeah, well, they, you know, one of the things I've sort of also, one of the things I also came to conclusion on is that while it certainly was a WASP venture. There's no question about it. I mean, I don't know how many uh, Catholics there are among the astronauts, but they're not too many. And even among the technicians who work for NASA, you could say that the 
population is, is, is predominantly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, more than the, let's say, the average would be in the nation. That finally, I thought that that was all right. That it would have been uh, sort of ridiculous and absurd in a way if you had a, uh, a Protestant, a Catholic, and a Jew, you know, and, 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 the, and, the, Jew, and the Jew that conveniently. That was a strange yeah, yeah, bombing. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, that's just, uh, equally absurd. The Jew conveniently half black, let's yeah, say, yeah. you know, to take care of everybody. <coughs> no, I, I thought, I thought, well, the wasps are entitled to their show, and this is it. And they do it very well. Uh, uh, you know, to, to me, in a way, uh, what's interesting in a democracy is not that everybody in a democracy finally pool their differences, but that a democracy be able to contain extraordinary opposites. In other words, certain people are going more and more in different directions. And that's the mark of a healthy country. It's not, the mark of a healthy country is not that you got a very effective, uh, let's say, police. The mark of a healthy country is the cops get better and the crooks get better. Then you get a country that's thriving. It's a very hard idea to get across to people because people keep thinking of, of keep a, they keep thinking of society as something that's like a pair of teeth that should be brushed clean every day. You know, but society is not a, not a pair of teeth that should be brushed clean every day. Society is an organism. It's an animal. You're I mean, also talking about a healthiness intention in the way. Well, uh, uh, any animal, for instance, has all sorts of functions. A lot of these functions are contradictory, just simply contradictory. I mean, we eat and we excrete, two profoundly different kinds of activities. Uh, uh, just for first of two. Uh, we make love and we uh, wage war. Uh, to attempt to simplify people, uh, is the beginning of all difficulty, I feel. So as I, I always go back to this notion that, that a healthy country is one where uh, everybody in it gets, if you will, a little more extreme, a little more perfect a representative of their own project, their own vision, their own ideal. So I felt it's absolutely that th if, if this country, for instance, did not have a space program, if the WASP did not have something they were profoundly proud of, that country would be worse off. Because well, where would it all go? Uh, WASPs are proud, strong people. They don't like to... Um, uh, feel that they're not, that this is their country and yet somehow it's all getting away from them, that they want to feel there's something that's very much theirs, and this was their venture. So in a way, you're really saying this is a healthy thing, even, even for that reason, because it's flaccidity, it's the flaccidness, the indifference, or the boredom that you find a greater threat, say, than tensions or extreme positions. Yeah, I, 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 I might tend to agree with I think boredom, I think boredom is, will create uh, fascism faster than anything else. It's funny at a certain point, if you get enough boredom, people finally want some sort of explosive ingredient in life, uh, which is, uh, you know, they, they, boredom begins to bring out the really the most uh, desperate and sewer-like emotions of people. Talking to Norman Mailer, uh, the theme is of a fire on the moon, his, his observations concerning the moonshot. And it's uh, journalistic in nature, yet uh, novelistic too. And it's the effect not just on the society, not just a book uh, concerning technology, but also the effect on a person, specifically the writer himself, Mailer. We'll return to the, to the conversation in a moment after we hear from Paul Wadiga. Studs? Oh, just that last point that Paul read, Paul Wadiga, that uh, Indians, Arthur Coppett, I saw that in New York. It's a, an overwhelming play. And City Players, by the way, are a group uh, that's filled with daring do in the best sense of the word, seeking, seeking new ways of theater, community theater, and yet theater for the city. It's a very excellent group, and uh, Indians, once they produce that here, should be quite exciting. Uh, talking to Norman Mailer, uh, the book is of a fire on the moon, Little Brown, Atlantic, Atlantic Little Brown, the, the publishers, and to pick up the conversation, talking about the need for tensions in any society. Uh, the health of tension itself in contrast to to emptiness, to, to boredom. So we continue.
right now this is sort of a free association conversation, yet based upon the book of A Fire on the Moon with Nor by Norman Mailer, who at the moment is the guest. I'm his guest at the moment while I was here in Chicago. And boredom, the trip itself. I'm thinking about three astronauts. What did they do? Some of you speak of the boredom of up to space, through space. It was a pretty dull trip for a long time. No, well, uh, I think if, you know, on something like a flight to Mars, boredom would become an enormous element on such a flight, because after all, that would take several years with our present equipment. But on the trip to the moon, it only took them two and a half days to get there, more or less. And in that time, there were so many details they had. I mean, these men did not literally, until they went, from the time they were up, I doubt they had two minutes to themselves during the whole day, because if they didn't have something to do, they had something to check on. There's always something to check on. There were 600 dials to monitor, to check over in that command module. And each dial, you know, we all know how much we look at three or four or six dials in a car. You, you know, we, we, we may look at, on a 200-mile tri trip, we may look at our oil pressure gauge, which never changes. We may look at that 20 times on a trip. And, and so these men had to do the same thing for 600 dials. And, 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 and of course, instruments of, 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 of all sorts, so that some instruments you know, might be based on, on certain physical principles, others on others, and they had to keep shifting their intelligence from one set of conceptual uh, uh, structures to another set. And it was always, they, oh, they were busy. I mean, and those, and they had the, back, was going, I'm go ahead. And they had all the tension of, 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 of the trip. So they had the tension, the, uh, the very fact that they had so many details to take care of, technological details to take care of, in itself prevented the boredom. Oh, I, th I don't think they were boredom for yeah. a minute. Well, coming back to something else now, that's another subject here, the question of, of technology. The, you know, the French comedian, Jacques Tati, mm -hmm. he says that the only time a man enjoys his car, something goes wrong with it, you see? <laughs> they say, then there's something, it's exciting, that's the tension you were talking about earlier. He gets furious, he's excited, oh, something's well, wrong with it, I he know. kicks it. <laughs> that's but a very French idea. See, so this, is his, this goes back to your point earlier. No, it's a very French idea. He's, he's, Tati's all wet. Yeah. Because uh, uh, anybody who knows, you see, all it shows is that Tati has an idea and knows nothing about machines. There's no such thing as a machine that isn't having, doesn't have something wrong with it. Machines always have something wrong with it. You know, you know, you know people who love cars, I take it, who work on their own cars. I'm sure we all have a friend or two who really works on his own car and tunes it. Have you ever heard that guy satisfied with the sound of the motor? His motor is 20 times better than your motor, isn't it? But he takes out his car for a drive and he comes back and he's worried. There's a tiny little tick, tick, tick in, in it somewhere that he hears that no one else can hear. Uh, in other words, the more people work with machines, the less satisfied they are with how they're running. People who don't know machines have the idea a machine runs yeah, perfectly that, or, or, or it has trouble. Doesn't that lead to something else, another theme, to obsession with machines, obsession with technique or technology? Of course. Uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I have no love for machines at all, but I am saying, but I do know a lot about machines one way or another in a small way because, you know, you know I, did, I did study engineering at college and I've lived with machines and you have to live with machines and, you know, I'm as go to my hands as the next guy. I mean, I can take a simple machine apart, put it together again. And what about, I know enough about machines to know that when people make remarks like Tati makes, that we're happy with machines only when there's something wrong with them. Well, he doesn't he, understand the machine. There's always something wrong with a machine. He was also half kidding. But I think he was, his, his whole point was technology. He, was, he feels as you do, to a great extent, about technology. I know, but, I mean, but, but to, to attack technology, you see, it's one thing to attack it. Just attacking it. There's another to attack it with a real, with a knowledge of what it really is up to. 
Uh, in other words, I suppose you're going to say, is this book an attack on technology or a defense of it? You'd, you'd finally have to say, well, it's more, certainly more of an attack than a defense, because it goes into all the sinister aspects of technology. But it isn't, you know, I'm not trying to, to put technology down simply and quickly. I think, I think it's something that you have to come to grips with. And well, I don't think you, I don't think, I didn't see you as putting down uh, events happening. I, I saw you as describing it and all the paradoxes and contradictions there. Well, for me, the, the book was a detective story in a way. I, it was a mystery. In other words, I was trying to, I, I saw myself as an amateur detective who was trying to solve a mystery, which is what was the meaning of this trip to the moon? It was, it a, was, it a, was it a noble event, an event or an insane event? You see, and that's the question that uh, rides through the whole book. Uh, what does it, this, I'll be bothering you too, the question of the machine and man, the question of a guy who is inventive, who uh, wonder, we talk about wonder too. Uh, will that be lost or will that still be there? Or does this event add to it or what? All this is part of it, obviously, you're talking about. Mm -hmm. About the devil and God and what's happening. Well, I, you know, you know uh, uh, one thing I did come up with, one strong thing I came up with that I've had ever since, is that this event may also become uh, more noble or more sinister as the years go on, depending on what's done with it. In other words, if NASA becomes a sort of super elite of scientists and nothing else, and, and the rest of human culture is excluded or from engineers it. engineers or technicians. Yeah, but, but if, if, if human culture as such is, is cut off from it, then it's going to become a more, uh, an event which is more and more sinister because it will be used by science to intimidate the world. And my argument about it is that they very quickly better begin planning to take some poets along on these trips. You know, let them see if poets can learn enough to make themselves useful on such a trip. But take those poets, because those poets are going to see things that no one else is going to see. And, and, and if they don't do that, they're making a profound error. They, they think they're being practical, but they're being vastly uh, impractical. So there's a question then, coming back again to the imagination of man. They have to take men, yeah, they, have to take men they, they should take men along on those trips who are not sympathetic to the technology of the trip, but in fact antagonistic to it. It, it would be, uh, that would, it would create a, the proper intellectual uh, intensity with which uh, would you the go event on could be. Trip? Yeah, I go on such a trip. I, I, of course I would. The only thing, uh, the reason I hesitate for a moment is the next thing is you have, to, you have to be of use on that trip. They're not at a point now where they can afford the luxury of taking a passenger, which means you'd have to put in an amount of time getting ready for that trip. Do you see what I mean? In other words, to really be of use on that trip, you'd have to put in at least six months or a year. So the reason my eyes cross is I said to myself, how much time was the question I asked myself. In other words, what, what would I pay to go on such a trip? Would I pay a year? Yes. Would I pay three years? No, probably not. It, it, it's like a prison sentence, after all, to sit down for a year and, and study technology itself. that hard. But the idea of a poet or a creative spirit, on, in addition to excellent uh, technicians, excellent men with machines, would give it that other dimension that clearly is lacking here. Well, it might. It might not at all. You, you know, uh, uh, some poet could go along on that trip and he could come back and he could he could be awful dumb by the time he had that year of training. You, you know, he could have no more sensitive equipment than anyone else. He might come back and say, gee, it was great. It was just great. Words failed me. It was great. What does it add up to then? Now, the billions, the time, the publicity, the commerce, the event itself, obviously there was a triumph of sorts. What does it add up to now to, to Norman Mailer? It adds up to uh, an activity that uh, is going to continue for a while and is going to pretty soon, I think in the next 10 years, an enormous question is going to get asked, which is do we continue in space or don't we? Do we go ahead and we start building space stations, you know, which orbit the Earth? 
Do we start setting up spaceships to travel, uh, you know, uh, uh, space shuttles to travel from a spaceship that's orbiting the Earth to a spaceship that's orbiting the moon? Mm -hmm. Do we start putting small colonies on the moon? Do we start developing our resources to go out into space, yeah. or do we not? Or, or do we put all our effort into solving things on Earth, yeah. or do we do both? Yeah. You see, because the other answer is going to be we do both. We yeah. don't uh, do one or the and other. And we do both. The other thing is it's an arrogance here, isn't there? An arrogance. When you said a moment ago, do we colonize? Do we colonize another mm. planet, you see? That in itself brings us back home again, doesn't it? Well, but then you get into the profoundest questions, which is what is God's intent, assuming that you're religious. If you're not religious, then of course, if you're not religious, these questions about space get much more difficult because they, they, they then are formless. In other words, then what are we doing colonizing? If a man is a reasonable man who does not believe in God, and believes there's no hereafter, and there's no eternity, and there's no eschatology, and there's no, you know, so to speak, no judgment. If he believes in God, I think you might ask the question. I think no, a guy like William Sloan Coffin might ask that question. But I think if you believe in God, then you then believe that it's, it's God's desire, or it is his displeasure that we're doing this. And you have to ask yourself which it is. It can, it can hardly be both. Uh, maybe it is, but uh, that sets up an extraordinary uh, uh, complexity in our vision of God, but you see what I'm getting at. Once you believe that there's a that God exists, then you start getting into into whether this is the fulfillment of His desire, or is in fact a, a diabolical and satanic activity. Well, I, I'm uh, I'm for uh, since I can since the essence of the wicked is always to advance things one step further. You know, wicked people as opposed to evil evil people aren't trying to destroy things; they're just trying to make everything go one step further. Every time people who are wicked always put everybody on. They won't put them on to kill them or to hurt them badly. They'll just put them on so that everybody's going to work a little harder. Everybody's into something a little more. Do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about? Yeah, I thought what you're talking about. This is not too removed from what you said earlier, also about the tensions necessary to yeah, society. Right. Even extreme yeah, views yeah. may be necessary too. But what I mean is, is, is that the it, I, my feeling is that we've got to push, probably push further into space at this point before we can decide that it is right or wrong. In other words, if we keep pushing into space and it, it is fundamentally wrong, if it's cosmologically wrong, I think there'll be a set of disasters in space that will end that program. You mentioned, yeah. by the way, some disasters that occurred. And one, one thing, never questions ever came up, the question of death. Earlier you point that out. A lot of questions asked by reporters, but what happens if something goes wrong? Do you ever think of that you might die? You know, this mm. was never asked, of course. So. Well, it was, I asked, I think, once, and uh, I forget Armstrong's answer, but it was, so in the order that it was to the effect that the thought was unpleasant and unprofitable, and so he did not spend much time on it. Well, uh, I know a guy in town. He's, I, never, I, don't, I don't believe in sadness. He said, I don't believe. And Hearst never had death discussed at San Simeon. Mm -hmm. uh, we come to surreality. But what emerges in Norman Mailer's latest book of A Fire on the Moon that Little Brown published is, is uh, as you say, very suspenseful, very revealing, not just of Norman Mailer, but I think of the thoughts of many of us, too and of an event that's obviously quite singular, but a very exciting, more in a, a book of, I think, of discoveries. Quite a marvelous one, yeah. The Fire on the Moon. Any, any uh, last word, not final words, any last words? I'm delighted, I'm delighted with your remark that it's a book of discoveries, because you know, in writing it, I had a feeling that if, if, if these fellows have done all that with the moon, all, all, that, all that traveling, all, all, all that advancement, all that innovation that the least we could do in the literary world is embark on a few, on a voyage of discoveries for ourselves. So I was very pleased that you used that word for this book. I think you've done that. Thank of course, you. it raises questions, and that's the important thing. It raises questions and challenges. Thank you very much, Norman Mailer. 
Thus the conversation, Nolan Mailer, the book of A Fire on the Moon and Atlantic, Little Brown and Company, the publishers. And we have about uh, some time. So, so some events in town. Of course, the Joffrey Ballet, the City Center Joffrey Ballet that are so 